This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. MLB.com StatCast Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. We have a lot to talk about today. Eugenio Suarez might actually hit 50 home runs. So might Jorge Soler. We had a listener ask us to dig into Matt Olson, who's also crushing the ball. The newest Cleveland reliever that you absolutely have to know before the playoffs. The Nationals have improved their outfield defense. And finally, the OG king of spin is back. Garrett Richards was our guy in 2015. He's back from Tommy John surgery. I'm pretty excited to get back to him since he's back in the big leagues. But first, Eugenio Suarez has 47 home runs. I feel like just from sitting next to you, I know this is true, but also I think just in the greater baseball world from looking at Twitter, um, everybody was shocked to realize this to the point where the Reds Twitter account started maybe making fun of people for not noticing that Eugenio Suarez has 47 home runs currently tied with Big Pete Alonso for the most in the major leagues. I will admit that when he hit his 40th, I got uh, a push alert on my phone saying, like, Eugenio Suarez joins the 40 home run club, and I did, like, a triple take. I will admit, as someone who who follows baseball for a living, even I did not realize. I was like, wait, really? That's happening? And Suarez has been a good player for a few years now, but never, like, a pure, like— slugger he i think he's one of those guys who uh gets a little swallowed up in the endless sea of talented national league third baseman like you think of national league third base you think of arenado you think of rendon you think of bryant and you think of justin turner and you think of manny machado and i'm probably forgetting like three other guys right now and also eugenio suarez like he's not the first name that that comes up on that list um but he's been pretty good you know he's had this is his fourth straight 20 home run season last year he hit 34 we probably didn't notice it then either um, he is, you know, signed this extension last year, seven years, $66 million. Um, remember he actually got acquired for Alfredo Simone. And as I was told by Reds fans, um, Suarez was a throw in. There was actually another prospect who was like the big ticket guy who I don't even remember his name. He did not pan out. Um, on the list of maybe regrettable Tigers trades, this is certainly one of them, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. The, the Reds possibly more than any other team have sort of like boosted themselves with like random low-key trades they also trade for Luis Castillo in a trade that like was totally yes. unnoticed at a time and Straley as I <laughs> basically remember. their two best players um came via like really low-key under the radar under the radar trades yeah they um you know he has increased his home runs each of the four years since he became a full-time red starter 21 in 16 26 and 17 34 last year 47 this year, uh, as Matt has a note here, that is actually, it's not as rare as we would have thought. He's increased his home run totals in each of his first six seasons, um, but also Chris with a K Davis, Marwin Gonzalez, Kyle Seeger, and Salvador Perez have also done that. That's like an interesting trend line. Yeah, when I was looking at his page, I was re- really excited. I was like, oh, cool. Like, this is this, maybe this is like really historically unique of, uh, you know, six straight seasons, but alas, no such luck. Still impressive. It actually kind of reminds me, he reminds me of, um, Carlos Guillen, 
who was also part of like a totally random trade that was like under the radar. And then he got to the Tigers and something got really good. And he actually was famous for, I think, increasing his batting average for like the first like yes. eight years of his career. So that's uh, two ways that De Suarez and uh, Guillen, three when you can't factor in the, the Tigers uh, commonality. So when you think of a guy hitting 47 home runs up from 34 last year and 26 the year before, you would probably think that he is having uh, like a great career year. And he has been very good. Like there's no doubt about that whatsoever. But when I dug into the metrics here, I found this kind of interesting. His hard hit rate is actually down from last year. Last year it was 46%. This year it's 42%. His expected weighted on base is down from last year by about 20 points. That's really, really interesting. Um, even his actual weighted on base is only up a little bit. 377 last year, 385. And, uh, you know, his weighted runs created plus is, is down slightly from 135 to 132. Again, very good. It's above average, but it's not necessarily this big step forward that you'd think. So the obvious thing you'd go to is, well, home runs are flying out all over baseball. But it's interesting when you look at the distance on his fly balls and line drives. Last year, he averaged 296 feet. This year, he has averaged 297 feet. <laughs> That's actually not where the home runs are coming from. Um, what's happening here, I think, is his pull rate is way, way up. Last two years, he pulled the ball 42% of the time. This year, it is 52% of the time. That is the fourth highest increase in pull rate in baseball behind some very random names, Teoscar Hernandez, Jerkson Profar, and Max Kepler. His ground ball rate is at a career low. His strikeout rate is at a career high. Um, so if he's putting the ball in the air more and he's pulling it more, you'd say, well, those are some, I don't want to say cheap home runs, but more easily accessible home runs. Now you'd think to yourself, where does Eugenio Suarez play? He plays in Cincinnati. It's not quite Coors Field, but beyond that, it's one of the best hitting ballparks in baseball. However, 23 home runs at home, 24 home runs on the road. None of this narrative makes sense to me. <laughs> I guess, you know, just good on, good on you, Eugenio Suarez, for having uh, an awesome year and maybe getting to 50, 50, 50 home runs. Like if someone had said to you before the season began... The only, or at least even a month ago, when it looked like there was going to be like six superstars at 50 home runs. Of course, now Trout and Yelich are out for the year, and Bellinger's kind of hit a slump and probably isn't going to get to 50. If someone said to you at the All-Star break, Eugenio Suarez is going to be the only player in baseball to hit 50 home runs this season. <laughs> um, that would have been surprising. Granted, Pete Alonso can still get there, too, and one other player we'll talk about in a second. Uh, Pete Alonso is another game or two in Coors Field, so that's the time to get moving. Um, I did look at Suarez's home run. So of his 47 homers, we have reliable stack cast tracking on 45 of them. And we have been uh, working on a tool where you can see how many parks would this ball have been a home run in or not, accounting not only for distance, but also for height of the fence. 25 of his 45 tracked home runs would have been out of at least 25 parks, right? So 56% of his home runs were just crushed. They'd be out of almost any park in baseball. 14 more would have been out of at least 10 parks, though 31% right there. That leaves us with six more unaccounted for home runs. Uh, they would have been out of respectively seven parks, five parks, five parks, four, two, and one park. So he's got these two home runs that would barely have gone out of any other ballpark. One of them, uh, on July 31st, he hit it only 90.7 miles an hour off the bat. 347 feet to left field at Cincinnati. Would have been out of only one other park in baseball. You can probably guess what that is. Where else do short left field balls go out of? 
Houston. Um, surprisingly, the one that would have gone out of only one park was not hit in Cincinnati. It was hit in Wrigley, and it barely got out. You know, they have those little, like, trap nets, like, right in left center field. Uh, on July 15th, he hit a ball into one of those. It barely got out of Wrigley. It would not have left any other park in baseball. And also, Wrigley has, has um, some of the shortest gaps. In, like, yes, uh, exactly. the power The power alleys, I should say. It's, you know, like, 378 to, to left center field. Like, it's – that's one of the – for, for – for, <clears throat> That's one of the cheaper home run spots, at least not down the lines in baseball. And a, a final note from our friend and colleague, Sarah Langs, and I am grabbing this directly from a completely unrelated email I saw her send yesterday. The softest hit over the fence home run ever tracked by StatCast in our nearly five full seasons of tracking had an 86.7 mile hour exit velocity by Eugenio Suarez on April 11th of this year. I watched it 340 feet just ever so slightly past the foul pole in Cincinnati. So I don't think he is uh, cheaping his way to home runs, but it's interesting to look at some of these. Like I think everybody at the bottom end of their home run range has a couple of these, but still he's going to hit 47 home runs or well, maybe 50 home runs. He's already hit 47 yeah, yeah, home yeah. runs. Um, because the other player we should, we should talk about who's having a uh, breakout home run season is Jorge Soler of the Royals, who was acquired a couple years ago um, from the Cubs in what is turning out to be a nice little arbitrage for the Royals. They traded one year of Wade Davis for, I guess, five or six years of Jorge Soler. And Soler is finally having the season people expected when the Cubs gave him that big bu- big bonus uh, coming out of Cuba uh, a few years back. First of all, respect for usage of the phrase arbitrage. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Jorge Soler has currently 45 home runs. That is already, uh, by a large gap, the most in a season by any Kansas City Royal. Previously, it was Mike Moustakas two years ago at 38. And that was and that was at the time the Royals. Well, right. <laughs> Steve Balboni. That was all the way back to 1985 with a mere 36 home runs. I think that's a combination of how large the field is in Kansas City, but also their style has always been like these speedy, you know, defense defense first guys. Like for sure, what their team has always been. Anyway, he has 45 home runs this year, and uh, he just turned 27, as Matt said, acquired from the Cubs. He spent parts of three years with the Cubs. From age 22 to age 24, it was actually a little better than I remembered. Had a 106 OPS plus, so like not actually bad um, for that age. With the Royals, he is up to a 120 OPS plus in parts of his three years. As I joked on Twitter this morning, he had a 258 batting average with the Cubs and 247 with the Royals, so he was a better hitter with the Cubs. That's definitely how this works, obviously. Uh, not at all. If you know the Jorge Soler story at all, it has been one of injuries. In the minors in 2013, he had a tibia stress fracture, and the next year it was a hamstring. The next year it was an ankle and oblique, and then it was a hamstring, and last year it was an oblique, and he's finally, finally healthy. Uh, he leads the majors in barrels. So barrels are our favorite StatCast metric uh, for, for hitters. It's a combination, perfect combination of exit velocity and launch angle. It's like the best possible thing you can do. Right now, he has 66 barrels. He's tied with Mike Trout, who will sadly not be getting any more barrels this year as he is injured and out for the year. Uh, he is four ahead of Abreu and Acuna. He could lead the uh, league, the major leagues in barrels this year. He needs to get up to 69 to get into the top 10 in the StatCast era. Would you believe Aaron Judge had 87 barrels just two years ago. Maybe we undersold how amazing of a season Aaron Judge had as a rookie in 2017. It's, it, may, it seems that way a little bit in uh, in hindsight, but uh, but yeah, Soler. I mean, he's he's always had this. You know, it seems like he's had this enemy. You know, he's had a lot of injuries, and with the Cubs, as you said, he had flashes, and you'd see like the crazy power. So it seemed like this was in there. It was a matter of whether or not he'd ever be able to unlock it. And now he's in KC. He's basically a 
a DH. Well, that was part of it. He is an essentially unplayable outfielder. That was a tough in the National League. Um, he, I was reading Ned Yost in the Kansas City Star recently, like talking about, you know, what, what happened with Solaire, what unlocked all this. And uh, this is kind of an interesting quote for me. This is what Ned Yost said. He said, it's a product of very hard work from Solaire, but not only him, it's also from uh, Pedro Griffal and Terry Bradshaw, who are coaches on the Kansas City staff. Pedro got Solaire when we first got him. We lined him up with people that hit with in Miami. He grabbed him every day and said, look, I'm going to show you how to use this computer so that you can formulate your own game plan. He was amazed about what you could learn on a computer, and now he's religious with it, which is one of the more entertaining quotes of the year. And if you dig a little deeper into that, it's really just about learning what the opposing pitcher throws, how he will attack him, having more of a game plan going up. And it's also about health. I just went through the list. This is the first time he's actually been healthy for an entire season. Um, He's also crushing these home runs. He has 17 of his home runs uh, going an estimated 430 feet or more. Only twice in the StatCast tracking era have we seen more than that. In 2017, again, Aaron Judge had 18. And in 2017, John Stanton had 24. I think that is both evidence of how hard Jorge Soler hits the ball and also how far you need to hit the ball to hit home runs in Kansas City. <laughs> you don't get any cheapo 345-foot home runs. So that, I think, inflates that average for him uh, a little bit. He does, however, have enormous home road splits, 18 home roads, 18 home runs at home, 27 on the road, and this is where the uh, Statcast metrics really come in handy. At home, he had a 393 expected weighted on base. On the road, he has a 392 expected weighted on base. That is all, remember, about the point of contact. Uh, you might think to yourself, well, that's exactly the same player. What's with the difference in home runs? On the ho- uh, At home, 367 weighted on base, and on the road, 388. There is your home field advantage or disadvantage right here i wanted to see if he was on a different american league team so i picked cleveland because cleveland's ballpark is relatively neutral ish right and i did the same exercise we just did uh when we were talking about i'm totally blanking on who we, we started talking about at first now <laughs> um you mean Eugenio Suarez. <laughs> Eugenio Suarez. Uh, so two of the balls that solar hit in cleveland that were outs that were flyouts to right field would have gone out in cleveland and three doubles he had in Kansas City would have gone out in Cleveland. So that might have cost him five home runs. That is a large part of the home run gap right there. And I, I bring this up because dude's got 45 home runs and he's doing it in one of the tougher hitters park in baseball. <laughs> if you if you if you go and look at his uh, baseball savant uh his baseball savant player page, you see I mean it, it jumps out at you. This you've got the color coded uh Cutter, cutter, color coded stats and you see it, there's a lot of red, top 2% barrel rate top 3% in exit velocity, top 6%, top 3% expected slugging, same with expected win base. Um, so he, he's coming by it honestly. This is really, as as far as, you know, quote unquote, breakout years go, this is like a, a breakout year for Solaire. And as mentioned, they have him uh, under team control for two more seasons after this. Yeah, uh, this is like an old story at this point, but his hard hit rate is up by 10 points. His launch angle is up by five degrees. He's healthy. He's 27. Those are all the things uh, you would expect to happen. He is not the only American League slugger. I love it when we get listener requests. This one is from Rob Lage, who said, who tweeted at Matt and I, hey Mike, on the next pod, can you guys do a deep dive on Matt Olson? I feel like he's flown under the radar and put up monster numbers since coming back healthy after the early, early injury. Uh, and I think that's true. Olson got just six plate appearances in Japan before he got injured. He returned to the A's on May 7th. Since then, his 141 weighted runs created plus is tied for 25th with, wait for it, Jorge Soler of everybody with a minimum 200 plate appearances. So he has been a top 25 hitter 
Now, Rob says he's flown under the radar. I don't know if that's true, but that's maybe because I just focus too much on baseball every day. And a top 25 hitter for Matt Olson seems right. I don't think of him as a top five or a top 10, but top 25. Yeah, I'll buy that. He also had a weird arc to his career. I mean, in 2017, he burst on the scene right when around the same time when he came up a little later in the year, but like Reece, Bellinger and Judge Reece and Reese Hoskins were all like, he, I guess Judge and Bellinger had come up earlier in the year and were dominating basically all year. And then he came around the same time as Reese Hoskins. And those two guys went bananas down the stretch. And it was, you know, Bat Olsen, oh, the next breakout star. And then last year, he was just more, you know, okay in that, you know, in that brief run in 2017, weighted runs created weighted runs created plus of 164, which is elite. And then last year he played in 162 games, but it was 118, and it was good. He hit 29 homers. It was like he's a fine player, but it was not kind of the right. star that people were kind of expecting him with, to be. With very good first base defense, yes, which Hoskins does not have. So yes. that that sets him apart. Um, this year he's back up to 148. He, he really his skill is crushing the ball, right? He hits the ball really hard. If you look at his hard hit rate this year, fourth best in baseball at 52% behind Sano, Judge, and Gallo. If you combine last year and this year, uh, and you, you have a minimum of, of 100 batted balls, it's Judge and then it's Olsen. Like, he is one of the five or so most elite baseball crushers. Um, I think he is another guy who his home park hurts him a little bit because obviously there's a ton of foul ground. In Oakland, uh, if you look at his home road splits this year, they're actually almost like Solaire's 12 at home, 12 home runs at home, 22 on the road, a 200 point difference in slugging. The difference with him and Solaire is that for Solaire, he's performing the same in both ways and the outcomes aren't the same. For Olsen, he is actually just performing worse at home. 372 expected weighted on base at home, 412 on the road. He is very much uh, like Suarez. His ground ball rate is down. His pull rate is up. That's the easiest way to hit home runs is down the line, not to dead center. I do feel like we get repetitive with that sometimes, um, but it's also what these guys are doing. The A's, by the way, have 10 players with a dozen or more home run. I wish I, I wish I had written them down so I could ask you to name the other nine. I don't have them in front of me. We both know that Chris Davis is on that list and uh, Matt Chapman's on that list. And I'm assuming Chad Pinder's on that list. I'm sure Marcus Semyon's on that list. The A's, who will probably be in the wild card game, feel very different to me than last year's A's where it was all about that insane bullpen. And now it's about uh, power, good infield defense, and like surprisingly okay starting pitching, I guess. The the A's are a remarkable team. I saw a couple of like um, smart baseball people I follow on Twitter the last couple of days, DJ Short being one and Joe Sheehan being the other, being like, how about the A's winning 90 games again? Like yeah. they, they, they seem to constantly kind of exceed expectations. And they really have – it's not – their position players this year are really fantastic. I, I just uh, ran a quick search on Baseball Reference. Teams with at least with the most players with at least three wins above replacement this year. You have the Astros and Yankees first with seven, Dodgers and Twins next with five, and also the A's with five, all with with at least three more. Mark Canna, Matt Chapman, Ramon Laureano, Matt Olson, Marcus Simeon. Marcus Simeon, one of the breakout stories of the year. Like it is a surprisingly deep lineup, and as you said, I mean the bullpen. On this show in the past, like last year, we were going crazy about like Lou Trevino, yeah, Blake Trinan, and Blake Trinan, and now, this it's, year, now it's Liam Hendricks. I mean, <laughs> although he he did give it up, cough it up last night against the Royals in a game that might end up costing them home field advantage in the wild card game, but that's neither here nor there. The point is the A's again, super impressive. They get overshadowed by obviously the Astros, who are a juggernaut, but um, you know, it's a really interesting team. They're likely going to be in the wild card game again and uh, doing it in a different way than they did it last year. I'm going to put you on the spot, and it's okay to say no. 
three weeks ago, had you ever heard the name James Karinchak? I had not. I had not either. Uh, and I think that's fine because it gives us a lot of room to try to educate ourselves. James Karinchak was called up by the Cleveland Indians. And when he did, he was just called up the other day. And when he was, uh, ESPN's Jeff Passan made this tweet that pointed out that he had 80% of his outs come via strikeout in the minors, which is an insane number. And it made me wonder why I didn't know anything about this guy. So we dug into it. He has made his major league debut. The StatCast numbers are phenomenal. And... Um, he is eligible for the postseason should the Indians get there, and he could be a really fun, out-of-nowhere, kind of fireballing reliever. He sort of reminds me of Nick Anderson a little bit in some ways, who's also like an out-of-nowhere guy. Um, James Karinczak, in 30 and a third innings this year in the minors, struck out 59.2% of the batters he faced, 125 batters faced, 74 strikeouts, which is, I mean, pure lunacy, and he does it with two pitches. Uh, he was drafted out of Bryant College in Rhode Island. Uh, two years ago, he is the second ever Bryant mlb or behind the immortal Keith McWhorter of the 1980 Red Sox. Do you know who the most... It's actually Bryant University, and you know who the most Me. the most famous alum of uh, Bryant University is? Uh, is it an athlete or like a celebrity or... Um, it, it's an, it, Well, Bryant University is in Rhode Island. Uh, it is an actor with deep... Uh, from a show with deep New England ties. So Cheers... Right. Very good. Okay. And I don't know, is it Ted Danson? <laughs> no, it is uh, Nicholas Colasanto, the guy who played coach. And then died. Yes. He did it for like two seasons. Yes. Okay. And, <laughs> and that is the most famous alum. Uh, 40 years ago. <laughs> uh, that's uh, what my uh, crack research pulled up uh, just before the show. This is why uh, people listen <laughs> to the StatCast podcast. Anyway, uh, Karen Chuck, you know, we were trying to figure out around the office, why wasn't this guy up earlier with such insane strikeout numbers? Turns out he missed two months of the season with a, ham- with a hamstring injury. He missed much of May, all of June, some of July. And when he's in the minors, we don't really have access to a ton of data outside of scouting reports and velocity. But I think we all know how baseball is being played these days. And when you are a right-handed pitcher with a 60% strikeout rate, you have a pretty good guess at how it's happening right now. And I was pleased to see that when he came to the the majors, it worked out exactly as expected. He, again, we're throwing, we're talking about 24 pitches here in the majors, so let's not go nuts with this. But he came up, uh, made his debut on September 14th against the Twins faced five batters, struck out three of them. And as you would expect, he has a huge amount of spin. He has a rising fastball and a diving curveball in ways that would put him very high on leaderboards if qualified. I understand very much that we are talking about just the smallest of small samples, but again, you don't strike out 60% of dudes in the minors by accident. He's also, there's there's some, there's a, there's some, maybe I would, there's some deception. If you haven't seen him pitch, he has got this really high arm slot. If, if you remember Josh Callmenter. It's absolutely. It, it's, it's almost, like if Josh Callmenter was way better. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a iron mic machine almost, which is the kind of thing where I think, I mean, if people remember when Callmenter first came up, he had some success, I think because people were not used to seeing um, that arm slot. Granted, Callmenter was starting mostly. So the second time people got to see him a lot more with, with a guy like Karinchik or Karinchik, uh, apologies for possibly botching it. <laughs> you're not going to get to see it. You're not going to see it twice twice in a night. You're going to get one look at it, and he throws pretty hard, and uh, he's got the weird arm slot. Yeah, I don't remember Commander throwing '97. Wasn't he the guy who uh, practiced by throwing tomahawks? Right. <laughs> that sounds, sure. Sounds vaguely familiar, <laughs> or hammers, or something. Anyway, um, again, only 24 pitches the other night. But if you look at his 13 four seam fastballs. They came in at an average of 97.4 miles an hour with very high spin. They would have 
an average of four and a half inches of rise above the league average at that rate, which would be tied for number one if he qualified with Colin Poche. So already I like him a lot. Um, if you look at the 13 pitches, 11 of them were right at the top of the zone. So if you can locate a hard rising fastball at the top of the zone, uh, you're going to be successful. Again, 60% strikeout rate in the minors. He also has a hard curveball breaking pitch. We confirmed with the uh, team that it is called a curveball. Came in at 85 miles an hour with a very high spin. It has 7.7 inches of drop more than average, which would be tied for number six with Max Fried if he qualified. So I thought that was interesting. He has uh, a fastball that rises four and a half inches more than average and a curveball that drops seven and a half inches more than average. If you combine those two, that's like a 12 inch difference. I'm inventing a junk stat here, but a a 12 inch difference uh, between up and down. That would be the most ahead of Trevor Bauer and Seth Lugo. I don't know if this guy can throw enough strikes. I don't know if he can stay healthy, but if you look at his curveball, uh, it is so vertical. It is it, it, Everything he has goes straight up and down, and it's probably got like perfect mirror spin. Like We don't have good enough numbers to say that for sure yet, but that's my guess. This all sounds like Nick Anderson to me, and he's dominating people this year. The big thing for him coming this year um, was throwing strikes. Um, and this year, he in the minors at least, he cut his... He still walks a lot of guys. Um, his walk rate in AAA was 17%, but last year it was 25%. So um, that's a big improvement. That's bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a big improvement this year. He's interesting. So if you're watching Indians games he's, he's, uh, this last week, he's going to get some, probably be getting some high leverage innings. And if they make the wild card game, you will almost certainly see him in the wild card yeah, game. Yeah, especially with Brad Hand out with a, an elbow injury. And you're right, if, if he gets into a wild card game, they're going to bring him in, and 98% of people watching the game will be like, who? who? Why is this guy in a postseason game? I've never heard of this guy. But now you, the educated listeners of the StackCast podcast, will know why. Uh, he is fascinating. Uh, Cleveland right now, one and a half games out behind Tampa Bay for the second wild card game. This feels like a race that will go to the end. I, Cleveland is not going to ch- catch down Minnesota, or chase down Minnesota, which I thought they might for the division until they got swept in that doubleheader. They may catch Tampa or Oakland, but... It's tough. I mean, without Hand and without Jose Ramirez, it feels a little bit like what's going yeah. on with the... Kipnis is out for the yeah, year now. With, uh, with the... Uh, with the Brewers, where it's like, they're putting up a really good fight, but they're kind of missing some key pieces, and yeah. it feels like even if they make it, what are they going to be able to do? But at least for, their, for September, they're definitely providing us some drama. Uh, the National League wildcard race is pretty fun. It looks most likely like it'll be Washington and the Cubs, I think. The Cubs are actually like chasing down the Nationals for home field advantage, possibly. That'd be a fun game. There is still very much uh, in play of a four-way tie. In the oh, National I can't League. wait. I can't wait. When you factor in, the, the aforementioned Brewers have a really soft schedule uh, the end of the way, the rest of the way. Uh, the Cubs play the Cardinals seven more times the last ten, seven of the last ten games of the season, and the Nationals are kind of right in the middle. So right now we have the Cardinals at eighty four wins, Nats at eighty two, Cubs at eighty two, Brewers at eighty one, four way tie, very much in play. We are no longer accounting for the Mets and Phillies. Uh, I think we're at, at this point. It's uh, they basically need to win out to be in in that discussion, and it just feels. Kind of unlikely. Well, there's a lot of reasons that the Nationals are in this discussion, one of which is that Anthony Rendon quietly has an MVP case, even though he will not win. But the one that fascinated me the most was that their outfield defense, which was kind of lousy last year, has been fantastic. They have 24 outs above average this year. That's the most in baseball. It is more than double the second place uh, Astros with 10. That is the largest 
gap between one and two we have on record. Uh, I will clarify once so I don't need to say it many times. On record here is only four years. We're not talking about a great deal of history. But still, they are 14 ahead of number two. Last year, Milwaukee was eight ahead of Atlanta. The year before, Minnesota was up 12. The year before, Kansas City was up five. So being 12 outs above average over second place is a pretty big deal. They are also in the midst of posting the largest year-to-year improvement we have seen in outfield defense so far. As I said last year, they were not very good. They were negative 16 outs above average. That's bad. Now they are up to plus 24. That's a year-over-year change of 40. The largest previous uh, improvements we'd seen were last year's Pirates, who added 30 outs above average over the year before, less Andrew McCutcheon, more Corey Dickerson, and last year's Brewers, who added 29 outs above average, by importing Lorenzo Cain and Kristen Yelich. Turns out a lot of this is about personnel. It's not all about personnel, uh, but a lot of it is simply fewer guys who can't field and more guys who can field. And we'll we'll go into what exactly they've changed. I wanted to see how much this has helped their pitchers. Um, you would expect that having the most outs above average would kind of tell you that story, and it does, but I wanted to go a little deeper. So what I did was I looked at every batted ball in play, not home runs, and I looked only for the ones that went a minimum of 200 feet because we're just trying to stick with the outfield here and not with the infield. Nationals pitchers on those batted balls have allowed an expected weighted on base of 443. That is the seventh highest in baseball. It is a lot of loud contact. Nationals pitchers have allowed only a 357 actual weighted on base, ninth lowest. So you take the gap between those numbers, 443 and 357, and you get 86 points of value saved. That's number one in baseball. That is a lot of outs. Uh, a lot of loud contact turned it out. It's uh, certainly it certainly helped uh, guys like Strasburg, who's having yeah. maybe a career year. Patrick Corbin. Patrick Corbin. Um, yes. So it's uh, the, the, it is a very strong run prevention team, and it's it's not just the pitchers, as as uh, as evidenced by what Mike just said. And even though those those starting pitchers at the top, Scherzer, Strasburg, and Corbin are getting a ton of the credit, the outfield defense is a huge part of it. Uh, the the before we dig into this more. I kind of looked into the Nationals pitching and I thought, well, you know, the bullpen was awful early and it's gotten better. Uh, it hasn't. It hasn't gotten better. Like it did for a minute. It's it's still not good. No, it's <laughs> like, it's it's an issue. <laughs> it, it, as of yesterday, they were the, uh, the they had the fourth highest bullpen ERA in the divisional era, which is not what you want. <laughs> anyway, what changed for the Washington defense? There are some obvious answers and some less obvious answers. The first thing most people would think of is that Bryce Harper is gone. And that's true. He was a negative 13 outs above average last year. Only four outfielders were worse. And two of them, Reese Hoskins and Daniel Palka, haven't been playing the outfield anymore. It's hard to be that lousy and keep your job. But uh, we went through this in great detail over the winter about why that was. And I came away thinking it wasn't about a lack of skill. And if you look at him this year in Philly, he's actually a plus one. He's been much improved on defense. So anyway, having less Harper has helped. Most of this is about Victor Robles, who has been incredible. He actually leads all of Major League Baseball with a plus 19 outs above average just ahead of Kiermaier and Kane and Buxton. He has been absolutely phenomenal. Uh, he is incredibly physically gifted. He has a top 30 sprint speed at 29.3 feet per second, where the league average is 27. He's one of only 10 outfielders to throw 100 miles an hour. He has had a weird offensive season. He probably is going to go 20-20, but still be like 10% below league average doing it. But defensively, uh, he's probably going to win Gold Glove, and he's going to earn it. He's kind of—I mean, I don't really—we've talked about him, his hitting a lot in the past. He just doesn't hit the ball very hard. Uh, but he hits enough to be passable. He's actually kind of the player that I think maybe people wanted Billy Hamilton to be, where he, like, is an amazing defender, but is, like, 
hits just enough to like justify making him an everyday. Yeah, there's, everyday a, there's play. a line there, and Robles might be like just on the uh, top side of that line, and Hamilton was not able to get to that. exactly. Yeah, um, and it's also it's not just about him because uh, if you remember the center fielder he was replacing was Michael A. Taylor, who was actually a really good outfielder. He was plus nine last year and plus ten the year before, uh, but he's been injured and he hasn't really hit. I found kind of a unexpected trivia fact. Did you know that Michael A. Taylor has played the most center field innings of anybody in Washington slash Montreal history? So that goes back to 1969. I would have never guessed it was him. That is wild. I probably would have guessed, I don't know, Marquise Grissom or somebody. Yeah, that's 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 some that's some that's some trivia right there. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's it's less Harper. It's more uh, Robles, who's been great, but it's also improvement from the guys who were there last year. Adam Eaton and Juan Soto were not very good. If you take the two of them along with Harper, the Nationals had three of the 17 lowest rated outfielders in baseball defensively. That's not good. Soto has gone from minus six to plus six. That's an improvement of 12. That is the third largest in baseball. I think we talked about him a couple weeks ago as well. He's worked really hard with Bobby Henley, the Washington coach, to improve his his first step and his reaction times. The, the data reflects that. Eaton has gone from minus six to plus one. This one's not really hard to figure out. Adam Eaton last year was really playing on an injured ankle all year. He had surgery. If you look at his sprint speed uh, and you look at it in terms of percentiles in 2015, 94th, very good. Next year, 83rd, very good. In 2017, 87th, very good. Last year, 61st. That seems like a guy who's not playing on a healthy ankle this year, back up to 81st percentile. Uh, Healthy again, getting to more balls. So sure, it's about Robles, uh, but it's really like everybody. Like They really have turned this around in a massive way. But because of the bullpen, they have not actually prevented more runs than they did last year, I guess. You probably want relievers who can get outs. <laughs> before we move on to our before we move on to our final segment, I do want to take a small issue with one thing you said in the national segment. Oh which no. is that saying Rendon will not win MVP. I think there's a, a real chance he wins. He's not going to win MVP. Okay. Yelich is probably not going to win now that he's missing the last two weeks probably. of the season. He m- has a very good case. If you look at comparing, I'm just looking at offense. First of all, if you look at fan graphs, Bellinger and Rendon are legitimately even in war. Exactly the same. Can I interject there? Now, I, let I, me finish my point. <laughs> well, I, but specifically to that, that is true. But I have also found that most people, not myself, but tend to look at baseball reference war first. And in that there, it's a huge gap. Fair enough. But if you look at even more traditional baseball card stats, he has a higher batting average, a higher on-base percentage, a higher slugging percentage. He has more runs scored. He has more RBIs. He has fewer home runs. He also has a potential – the recency bias plays in the minds of voters sometimes. He has a chance to have some, like, dramatic moments in the last two weeks of the season, which Bellinger does not really have a chance to have. Not his fault. We we can't play this both ways. We Not that you are. Okay. But there are definitely some writers who are going to, let's say, penalize Mike Trout, even if he was healthy, for playing on a team that is lousy and not in the race. But you can't also go to Cody Bellinger and say, your team is too good – and you're not playing competitive games. Like, that but it, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying he would necessarily – it's more of like it would give Rendon a boost and maybe it could come at the expense of Bellinger. My point is simply is that I think it's really close. Bellinger actually has not been nearly as impressive the second half of the season as he was in the first. Still an excellent player, but he was otherworldly in May and he's been like good, not spectacular in the second half. 
I think it's going to be close. Where, it, I think I, I think it still has not to be decide to be determined. The last two weeks will decide who wins national league. Where, where I agree with you is that Rendon has long been one of the most underrated players in baseball, and he's absolutely deserving. You know, like every year, you know, I rank third baseman, and I'm pretty sure last year I ranked. Uh, Rendon is the number one third baseman in baseball. And, you know, I spent the next three months hearing from Rockies fans saying, oh, Arenado, Arenado is great. But Rendon is a superstar and he is going to be the most interesting free agent, I think, this winter. Like, I can't believe he's going to be out there and every team is going to have a shot at him. That's going to be a lot of fun to see what happens. The issue is that a lot of the teams that theoretically might spend big on a third baseman have third basemen. I don't know if that's true anymore, right? Like, it's not hard to see the Dodgers going after him and saying, you know, Justin Turner, you've only got one more deal, one more year left on your deal. You're getting a little older. Why don't you be like a first base, third base, you know, kind of backup guy? Or, you know, Corey Seager, we're going to trade you and move. That's you know, fair. Like they could totally do that. The Rangers seem like they're totally going to be. To me, the Rangers are the are sort of the yeah. obvious like fit, um, other than the Nationals, of course. But uh, that's that would sort of be my uh, my guess. But if there's a guy like Garrett Cole, every team can do a starting pitcher. Well, there is one team I can say safely will not be in on Anthony Rendon, and that's going to be the San Diego Padres. However, we are going to talk about the Padres here. Last night, Garrett Richards came back and made his San Diego debut. He had last pitch in the big leagues last July, July 10th, 2018, uh, for the Angels, got injured, Tommy John surgery, missed more than a year. While he was rehabbing last December, he signed a two-year deal with San Diego with the uh, obvious expectation he would miss most of this year, but for the Padres, it might pay off next year. A two-year deal for $15.5 million, $7 million this year, $8.5 million next year. If you were to just look at the surface stats of his game last night, they don't stand out that much, right? Three and two-thirds of an inning, three and two-thirds innings, five hits, three runs, you know, five strikeouts, which which is nice, right? But if you've been following this show or StackS for any length of time, you might remember that before Ryan Presley, before Seth Lugo, before we'd ever even heard of Seth Lugo, in 2015, year one, the OG StackS spin guy was Garrett Richards. And when you look at what he did last night in three and two-thirds of an inning, he is back, baby. <laughs> I actually remember the first time I got like a look at StackS data. It was on like from 2015. It was on a, like a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet. And it was like we just sort of like had to sort categories. Good times. And it was like it was like Garrett Richards. Wait, what? I never thought he was this interesting, but now he's like the most interesting pitcher in baseball. Again, he threw you know a couple innings last night, but as we've discussed in the past, you don't need a lot of sample size to know if a guy throws hard, and you don't need a lot of sample size to know if he can spin it. In just one appearance so far this year, he has 89th percentile fastball velocity, 99th percentile fastball spin. And 100th percentile curveball spin. Again, six pitches, uh, but it's number one ahead of Ryan Presley and Seth Lugo. We know that having high spin does not by itself make you good. But also, even before anybody was talking about spin rate, remember, Garrett Richards was a good pitcher. That year, I can't remember if it was 14, I want to say, before he bled his knee. 2015. Uh, Oh, no, I guess no, 14, you're right, 14. He bled his knee on that weird play in Fenway. Yes. And that year, he looked like he was going to win the Cy Young Award. And then, you know, he's obviously had a lot of injuries, injury problems since then. And number one, it's fun to see him back. Number two, it is fun to see that the spin and velocity post-Tommy John surgery have not left him. And number three, the 2020 Padres rotation could be kind of interesting. Chris Paddock looks like he's going to be a star. Richards, if he's healthy, could be pretty good. And that's, I mean, that's the problem. You can't really count on Garrett Richards for, I mean, you just can't count on him in any way, you know. But, but a worthwhile gamble to take on. For season. sure, but you just, you, it's not a situation where you'd be like, oh, he's one of our five stars. He basically has to be like six or seven, or you have to have like really, in which the, the Padres do have guys in the minors with options who they can like cycle in, but it's still like, it's, 
a great flyer for the Padres to take. Don't get yeah. me wrong. I just don't really know what kind of expectations you can have. He's he's thrown a total of 142 innings over the last four seasons combined. No, absolutely. Uh, I mean, but think about their their rotation right now. Paddock, who looks very good. Richards, who could be good. Uh, you know, Lauer and Lucchese have been like interesting mid rotation guys. Cal Quantrill is fine, but then they've got these prospects coming up, right? Adrian Morhone is not that far away. Mackenzie Gore, Louis Patino. Uh, we've always loved Denelson LeMay, even though I think he's probably a reliever. But also, they should sign Garrett Cole. Maybe more than any other team. I guess the Yankees will very much want Garrett Cole. The Padres should sign Garrett Cole. The Padres would certainly be uh, considered a front runner, as as would I think the Angels, because he's from he's from Orange well, County. And the Angels desperately need some help for Mike Trout. I think the Padres are going to trade for Noah Syndergaard. I think that's finally going to happen. We've been talking about that for like two years. I think that's finally going to happen. That would be a very Mets thing to do, I guess. And then I don't know. Zach Wheeler doesn't get the qualifying offer. We'll see. I don't it, talk about it, it, also dep- yeah. it also depends on it depends on uh, on. Uh, yeah. Anyway, Cole Hamels. Cole Hamels will sign with the Padres unless he goes back to the Phillies. Well, I mean, right now, who, I mean, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, well, has not looked very good. Uh, but Gary Richards is back, and we finally get to watch the spin numbers yeah, good, roll in. Good for him. I mean, it would be interesting to see the. Uh, I would love to see this pay off for the Padres. You know, sort of putting the two-year investment, rehabbing him, getting him up to speed, and then bring him, um, bring him along next year and having him be, you know, a real contributor to the team. It's kind of sad. You know, he's thirty-one years old, Richards. He's barely pitched, but it's just been. He was drafted in two thousand nine. Really? So, yes. Wow. So he's, missed, he's basically missed four seasons, too. Uh, this was a similar plan to what the uh, Rays, I guess, had done with Nathan Ovaldi, signing him when they knew he would miss time. And they got a few good starts from him and then traded him for Jalen Beeks, who looks like a you know usable piece. So it's, uh, it's a good strategy that pretty much any team should try. This is our show for this week. This is the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Thanks for listening. 